Country Podcast Edition. I've always been around great songwriters and artists my whole life. I'm Michael Knox. Welcome to my world. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Jason Aldean, and you are listening to my boy Michael Knox on Knox Country Podcast. Welcome to the Knox Country Syndicated Radio Show Podcast. I am here with Mickey Jack Cones. How you doing, man? Doing all right. Now, me and Mickey know each other from a lot of different experiences. You know, we do stuff in the studio. Um, he's a musician. He's a manager. He's a producer and uh, exceptional engineer. So my relationship with Mickey is, is we do a lot of recordings with Jason Aldean together. That's right. What, since 2008-ish? I think it started on the My Kind of Party record, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, right. so so we, we we've had some good times together in the studio, and um, but now over your years, you know, a lot of people don't know kind of where where it started with you, <laughs> because you did you were a live musician for a long time, correct? Yeah, it's a long story. How long is this show? Well, it's um, <laughs> we can edit it. <laughs> You're gonna have to. No, um, I come from a musical family. Um, Starting with my great-grandfather, he was a multi-instrumentalist uh, on my grandmother's side, and my grandmother sang with the Glenn Gray Orchestra straight out of high school. Uh, my grandfather and my grandmother had three daughters. Uh, they ha- are still known as the Cone Sisters, but they had a couple of record deals offered to them in the late 80s. Uh, Barry Beckett um, from Muscle Shoals uh, moved to Nashville, I guess in the 80s, maybe late 70s, and he started producing. He found them and started producing them uh, for RCA, and they still play to this this day and age. And uh, I, of course, get it honest um, from the performance side because I started taking guitar lessons when I was eight and started playing with my mom and her sisters when I was 10. I think my mom said she rented me a light blue tuxedo. Uh, Please tell me there are pictures of this. She has a video, actually, (laughs) of me playing with them, opening up for the platters. So I opened up for the Cone Sisters, who opened up for the platters. When I was like 10 years old, I played, my mom said, the day of the show, she said, do you want to open up for us? I mean, it was a big event, too. And I was like, sure. She said, what songs do you want to play? I said, well, I want to play Blue Suede Shoes and Johnny Be Good. And then I played with them for a while. And then I had my first band when I was 15. Uh, lead singer, guitar player, band leader, the whole deal. And uh, along the way, from 15 to 24, um, the local radio stations, the bands that I was in, I'm from San Antonio, Texas. Um, we were playing down on uh, a downtown. It's like their version of 6th Street in San Antonio is St. Mary Street. Um, and the local radio stations were wanting to play our songs, and we didn't have any songs. So I was writing songs and recording them in my bedroom, giving them to the radio station, and that's kind of how I got into the production side of things. And uh, So what were you recording on back then? <laughs> well, I guess the real answer is it started when I started taking guitar lessons because I wanted to record myself, but I didn't have a way to do it. And so I took a pair of headphones and kind of propped them up on the floor and I was I was I figured out I could use the headphones as a microphone and I was recording into my mom's dual tape deck recorder and so I would record one part in the headphones on one side and then bounce that down to the other side and play another part so I was stacking myself when I was probably 9 or 10 years old and that's so that kind was of what a, started yeah. that was a reel to reel that was actually a dual tape deck yeah that's yeah, good an actual tape deck yeah, my um, first one was a four-track cassette. That's right. What, what do you remember the brand? No, uh, um, 
Apex. Apex was one, yeah. And then my grandmother bought me. Uh, after that, she was like, "Okay, Mickey needs something." So I had a four track Marantz. Yeah. So that was my that was my first recorder that uh, my grandmother bought me. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So so twenty five, you said. Yeah, twenty four, you know, twenty five. I moved here. Yeah. yeah so is that kind of when the when the Nashville bug hit, or is that kind of when that kind of came in? Well, so because my mom uh, and her sisters were offered a record deal. Um, back in 87, I graduated high school in 91. That's kind of what put Nashville on the radar for me because I was like, y'all are going back and forth to Nashville. What's in Nashville? And Barry Beckett, his sons, uh, Matthew and Mark, um, they're still around. Matthew's a prominent attorney and Mark plays drums. He's an Opry, uh, member of the band and, uh, weekly. So I, I, I met them back in the day. And so that just kind of like intrigued me. They, they, I was like, I want to go to college, but where do I want to go to college? I don't want to go to like a school that just teaches me something I'm not going to ever use. So I ended up finishing college at Belmont. So that's when I moved back here in 96, finished. I had about a year and a half left and, um, Graduated with a bachelor's in business and an emphasis in music uh, studio production. Awesome. Yep. That's cool. So were you in bands in college or, I mean, what, was it ever country bands or what was it? It was all the rock stuff for me. I mean, it was everything from Stevie Ray Vaughan to Def Leppard to, you know, those, the, all the 80s rock stuff. From 15 years old until I moved here, I never had a weekend off. I mean, I felt like I was the touring musician. It was Thursday, Friday, Saturday, even in high school, you know, because yeah. 15, 17, 16, 17, 18. I, that's, everybody knew me as, now Mickey can't come to the party because he's playing at the party. Or Mickey can't, you know, he's playing. So I missed birthdays and Christmases and Thanksgivings. and um, Hang, hang, hang. I got to get the, I got to get the violin out. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your first thing on the road? The thing that said, hey man, I'm here. I'm recording, or I'm engineering, or I'm playing. I mean, what what was here? that? Yeah, you hear, you mean in Nashville? yeah, in Nashville. What was that first gig that kind of turned it all on and made that ball start rolling forward? Well, after I, I mean, I, there's a lot of things along the way, but after I graduated from Belmont uh, in December of '98, I started engineering uh, for Malloy Boys and J. Gary Smith Productions, which is David Malloy's uh, publishing house, is is what it was on on 17th Avenue, and. Um, I was their staff engineer, so that's where I kind of got my start here in Nashville. I met a lot of people at Belmont, you know, who are still great friends to the artists and, and even producers and writers. And um, but as far as like right out of college, it was it was that publishing house where I started engineering, and they actually just they needed us. They wanted an intern, and they asked me to come over and mix a few demos. And after I got my hands on the console and started showing them that I could not only mix, but I could sing backgrounds, I could overdub guitars and uh, percussion and program some stuff, they said, how about, you know, they didn't want to pay anybody. Then they offered me $7.25 an hour. So I was like, I'll take it. Uh, I'm engaged. I need a, I need a gig. And that's where I'm, I started meeting all the musicians in town. That's where I met, of course, David Malloy, who was my basically my mentor back then. And I've, and I've of course, been in partnerships with him since then. I've known him for that long, 20 years. But um, if it wasn't for him hiring me there, I don't know where I'd be. Um, but yeah, that was my, my start officially. So when did the opportunity of you tour managing and being the band leader for Julie Roberts come about? Yeah, I met Julie uh, when I was writing at EMI, and we were writing songs together. She had uh, gotten a record deal on Mercury, and we were writing one day, and she said, hey, I got to go on the road. Uh, will you 
kind of come on the road and do the radio tour with me. She said, you're the only guy my my boyfriend trusts to go out on the road with me. And I said, I sucker. I said, I got him fooled. No. Uh, and so we, I said, well, sure. So, you know, I went out on the road with her and did the whole radio tour thing. I actually wanted to get that experience knowing that I wanted to be a producer, knowing that I was, uh, I wanted to kind of get that that experience under my belt to go out on a radio tour and and see what it was like for real i mean for 15 20 years i was an artist myself back in texas so i just wanted to know kind of what to expect so i could pass that on to artists that i was working with and just have that knowledge so i my intention was to just do the radio tour and then uh towards the end of the radio tour she said i need a band I said, well, I'll help you put a band together. So I put the band together, and then she said, well, you got to play. I said, well, I'll play your first few dates with you, and then I got to get on. I'm not going to be a road guy. And then uh, <laughs> I'm going to be opening for Rascal Flats on the Here's to You tour. Okay, well, I'll stick around for that. <laughs> I always wanted to be in a, you know, in a coliseum and hear my guitar like ring out in the rafters. And then she said, and I said, well, I'm going to quit after that tour. She said, okay. I'm going to be on uh, Good Morning America. <laughs> I said, okay, well, I'll quit after that. And then uh, she said, uh, you know what? Uh, Jay Leno wants us to be on the show. <laughs> I said, Julie, this is incredible, but I'm going to quit after this. And then we ended up doing Good Morning America and Jay Leno again. So four and a half years later, then I quit. But uh, yeah, so there was a lot of, there was a lot of uh, awesome experiences there. So when... Um when when was your first um, uh, kind of kind of thing in production? When was your first like, hey man, I I, I get to produce this record? Yeah, that kind of goes back to why I got the EMI uh, publishing deal um, in '98. Mark Chestnut's manager, uh, Joe Ladd and Kelly Williams, his day to day guy, reached out to me um, because they had heard a few of my. I guess demos of songs that I had recorded in my dorm room at Belmont. And there weren't really track guys back then because the software wasn't out. You, you didn't have all the luxuries you do now to make it a little bit easier. So I was building tracks like I did when I was a teenager. And uh, they heard those songs and they said, we've got these two, these identical brothers, uh, Josh and Jacob Miller, we're trying to do something with them. They have poetry, basically. They have lyrics, but they've never written songs. They don't have any music. So I, I put the music to their songs, to their lyrics. And um, we probably recorded about 15 songs. And I produced the music, wrote the music, edited all their lyrics, create, came up with the melodies. And that ended up getting Josh and Jacob their record deal on Curb, at Curb LA, on Curb LA. And it was a pop deal, and they were releasing it in Europe. And so because my music my production the songs that i had written had landed them their deal emi jumped in and said hey we want to sign you and ben vaughn was actually there with gary overton and i graduated with ben vaughn and uh so they signed me uh back in back in i don't know 99 2000 that's cool yeah and so that was my first production gig yeah was uh was josh and jacob miller who the name ended up being nemesis rising but uh yeah so that's out now well let's fast forward just a little bit to your you meeting Tony Brown that kind of kind of started the good run of your productions with some broken bow artists for sure um of course through you i had i had been engineering aldine who is of course on broken bow and but they've never asked me to do a production per se and uh i had uh, it's kind of a funny story i was singing uh backgrounds on demos and i had sung backgrounds for a song that Tammy Hyler had written um called what makes you pretty the long story right uh there's like 23 of me singing background on this one song and tony brown calls me up and he says 
he's cutting the, he's cutting this song on Katrina Elam that I had sung the backgrounds on the demo, and he said, uh, "Mickey, it's Tony Brown." He said, "I said, well, hey, Tony Brown, my jaw drops. You know, it's like you play piano for Elvis, and yeah, uh, I'm kind of stuttering around." He said, um, "I've been trying to get these background vocals recreated, and I, I've tried three times, and I can't get it. Would you mind singing the background vocals?" And I said, "Absolutely. Are you kidding?" So I ended up singing the background vocals um, on those projects, and that's kind of what started my relationship with Tony. And um, a couple years later, he ends up calling me up and saying. Would you like to cut some songs with on Joe Nichols with me? And I said, uh, I'd be absolutely honored. But why do you need me? You know. And uh, I think there was just a, there was just a, a sound that he was looking for, and just a freshness. And uh, and uh, yeah, that was I don't know 2012 ish. We went in and cut four sides, and that ended up getting Joe his record deal on Broken Bow. Yeah. Now now, what singles came out of that? So we ended up cutting. Like I said, we cut four sides and. Uh, two of those songs the label ended up picking up one of them was uh, Billy Graham's Bible which is Joe's current single right now ironically and the other one was Yeah um, which was um, Joe's second number one off that label yep so were you part of the production team of Sunny and 75? I was Um, so I actually um, I produced the entire record those songs that were picked up by the label, of course, were co-produced with Tony, and then I co-produced the rest of the record with Derek George, who at the time had produced the Randy Hauser project. So yeah. um, it was kind of our first introduction over there to Benny and, and Broken Bow as producers, and um, we tag-teamed on that one, and, and yeah. Yeah, so how many number ones did you have off Joe? Joe had two number ones and then a top 20 with his third single off of that record. Yeah, that's good. Yep. So was uh, Sunny and 75 your first number one as a producer? It was. That's awesome. So yes, how did that feel? Oh, incredible. Are you kidding? I cried at the number one party. I know. I'm, awesome. a <laughs> I'm a little wuss. I'm a little wuss. I was raised by my mama. I'm in touch with my sensitive side. I got up there and started thanking everybody and thank Tony for getting me involved. And you know, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you, Tony. And I started getting all teary-eyed. That's awesome. Yeah, it was crazy so how crazy. many people did you tell you loved that day <laughs> pretty much everybody <laughs> i ran into <laughs> this is mickey jack cones and you're listening to knox country podcast so now that led into them wanting you maybe to cut some stuff on dustin lynch yeah, um, so I guess Benny had called me up, and, and Dustin hadn't, he had a first record out, I can't remember the name of the record, but um, Cowboys and Angels was on it, um, Wild in Your Smile, they had about four singles released off of that record, and he hadn't had a number one yet, and the label was saying that his live shows um, were kind of just laying there because they didn't have enough energy on that record, and um, so they wanted me to come in and try to get some, try to bump it up a little bit for him. So this basically, so his live show could could uh, come to life, have a little more energy. And um, I ended up cutting, I guess it was, yeah, almost the majority of that second record. What were the hits off that? So the first single off of that record was Where It's At. Yeah, which is my, which was a huge number one. Yeah, it was a huge number one, and it was actually my first number one solo number one. Yes, yeah, as a producer, as a producer, yeah. And, and Dustin's first number one, and Dustin's first number one. I mean, so that's yeah. that's pretty big. Yeah, it yeah. was it was. I mean, it was huge. And that but song that, was addictive. You couldn't get it out your head. <laughs> yep, 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 <laughs> yep, 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 yep. <laughs> but that was but that was your second goal you've hit in like a year. Yeah, you gave um you gave Joe his first number one at that label. 
mm-hmm. which was your first number one as a producer in That's a right. sense. You know, and then you got another. You gave you helped Dustin get his first number one, and that was yours as a solo. That's right. You know, so now you felt like the next number one you could just phone in. <laughs> <laughs> Never. No, I'm so I'm so OCD and competitive and all that. I but definitely. No, I mean, you hit. It was amazing. Four consecutive number ones. Four consecutive number ones on Dustin. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, for your first solo production project. Can, yeah. you, na- can you name them real fast? <laughs> Where It's At and Hell of a Night and Mind Reader and Seeing Red. Not in that order. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've got to be, I mean, it's got to feel good. You've got to feel vindicated in a in a sense I mean it's like okay I'm, I'm gonna do this thing by myself and oh I just get four number ones in a row <laughs> well I mean so I grew up like studying Mutt Lang and all these hands-on producers so when I was you know in bands and then recording in my own dorm room in college my whole mindset of a producer was just to be hands-on and mix and sing and play and just kind of do it all I learned quickly after being here that's not necessarily the way it goes and so when you say the word vindicated, it wasn't necessarily vindicated, but it was just awesome because it made me feel like somebody else liked it. You know what I mean? Because as a producer, I they they are probably those songs are more my babies than 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 to some other producers because I was in here twenty two hours a day working on so many of those intricate parts of those records i mean my wife was at the studio like sleeping on the couch just to like spend time with me while i was working on the outro for two days of where it's at you know so when you're that into it like second guessing everything and you know the labels like really you know wanting dustin to have a number one they're not really caring if i have success they're just wanting to (laughs) you know sell records and 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 get the artist to the next level which is what i want to do too so there was a lot of weight on the shoulders in my in my mind because it was like hey this is the second record we need you to do something really special and at that point i had never had a number one a solo number one so yeah it it definitely uh felt awesome Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, during this process, you got these four number ones. And then Joe, Joe's having some good success. Now you start thinking about developing new acts, maybe moving into management, yep. uh, doing some other things, starting another kind of production company kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I know you did um, Runaway June. Was that before you started moving into management or was that kind of in the middle there? Well, so let's see, Dustin had, he was on, after his second number one, I had met um, Jordan Johnny, Jordan Walker and Johnny McGuire, um, who are the duo Walker-McGuire um, that are out now. But March of 2014, I met those guys, and I had wanted to, I'd always known that I wanted to do uh, more. I felt like I had more to offer than just sitting behind a console. Just because of my upbringing, I came from a musical family, the performance side, knowing all of that side, then moving to Nashville, learning all about, you know, not only in school learning about it, but hands-on learning about working with labels, working with producers, working with the artists, working with the record labels, and being on the radio tour with Julie Roberts, you know, playing in arenas, figuring out how merch works and sales of, you know, artist merch there's just a lot of aspects of 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 being a recording artist that i felt like i could 
uh, offer somebody. And Jordan and Johnny were the first ones that I kind of, you know, put my arms around and said, hey, let's do this together. And so, yeah, I was definitely looking for an artist to do more than just produce. Yeah. So so you're managing those guys. I am. Yep. Yep. So I, I formed Core Entertainment back then uh, in 2015, right after I met them in 14, signed them to Core Entertainment and, um, you know, focused on getting them really out on the road they were already gigging but it, their show needed to be stepped up they needed to get their costs down and um, they were touring across the country for about a year and a half um, from when I met them and then you know they were like when are we going to cut some music when are we going to cut some music and about two years into it we ended up finally cutting I only cut three sides on them we released a song called Till Tomorrow and the strategy was to uh, get the get the streams up they already had their their fan base growing from touring across the country big d and bubba had been great to them at that point and ended up landing them a record deal uh, at broken bow on wheelhouse records and um they're on their second single now called lost um and yeah it's, it's been a great it's been a great uh, few years knox country podcast edition <laughs> Some of you know me as a record producer for acts like Jason Aldean and Thomas Rhett. Others know me as the son of rock and roll legend Buddy Knox, party doll fame, back in 1957. I'm Michael Knox. Welcome to my world. You're listening to Knox Country. Hey, this is Keith Urban. What's up, y'all? It's your boys here, Florida Georgia Line. Hey, this is Little Big Town. And you're listening to Knox Country. You've entered Knox Country. Welcome back to the Knox Country Podcast. Yeah, but that's got to be uh, that's got to be pretty unique in in our town. You you're starting out as a musician, you work your way into some songwriting, then you work your way in as a road manager, uh, <laughs> then a live touring manager, yep. um, and then playing on records, and then working your way into production, <laughs> and now it's working its way into management. Yeah. You know, do you which, which aspects of it do you find yourself gravitating to first when you're seeing an act? Do you do you think about the management first, or are you thinking about how you can make them sound first, or, or what do you when you're looking at somebody new, what what comes to mind first? Well, every artist needs something different depending on where they are in their career. That's kind of that's kind of the way it, you know somebody might have their project completely finished on a musical level, and they just need the placement of it. They need strategy. Somebody might not have any music, but but they're playing and their numbers are up and their social numbers are up. So it's almost like just figuring out what each artist needs. And with Jordan and Johnny, you know, they didn't need the music first because that that would be too premature. Um, they needed to get all of their 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 social numbers up and grow that fan base. Some artists, it's funny. Some record labels will sign an artist without ever stepping foot on a stage, you know. And and I'm I don't come from that world. I mean, you know what I mean. That's that, yeah. that's uh, that seems backwards to me just coming from my upbringing it's like get the performance down be able to sell people in a room and have a conversation so i mean the first thing that i'll look at it really depends on what the artist needs and and i wear as you've just mentioned i have a closet full of too many hats but but i like to wear them all yeah um so so with all that being said the songwriting always seems, you know, like you're so into the, the other things yeah. that the songwriting's trying to fight its way in there. It's so true. So, it's so, so, true. so, how do you find time to make that be on the same level as your management thought and your production thought? Well, it's been tricky because now that it, I've got the management hat on and it's a bigger hat at the moment because it's 100% on my head uh, with Jordan and Johnny, um, you know, 
you have to manage your time and and it's and it's it is a tricky uh juggling act um and and you're right the the writing per se i wouldn't say that it suffered it's just that it's always been focused on whoever i was producing you know so i've got a couple of trace atkins writes uh songs on his records actually uh his last let's see three singles ago lit that you know i've got some julie roberts songs but it's it's the artist that i was working with that i was kind of writing for or with so as a writer no i didn't get to sit in a room monday through friday and write you know four hours a day um and and that did suffer in a sense, but I wouldn't call it suffering because the other aspects and the other hats that I was wearing were successful. Yeah. yeah. Now, your production style is it? You're in a you're in a little bit of a loop generation, you mm-hmm. know. But you kind of you are that generation, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit where you make that relevant in your songs. Yeah. You know, do, do you find that being something with that with that you you use often, or do you try to find ways not to use those things? I think I, <laughs> I kind of pride myself in not getting pigeonholed in a sound per se. Um, I've recorded, like you mentioned, Runaway June. There are zero loops in, in that stuff that I produced. Um, and it's a little more organic, a little more acoustic driven. And then you listen to the Dustin Lynch songs. I combined the live band with programming that I actually did myself um, after the fact. Um, and it's and it's got I mean you know we're loaded up with programming so I kind of go one extreme to the other yeah um, or at least that's what I pride myself on is trying not to get pigeonholed into one sound um, because I do love all aspects of that of different types of music more traditional country a little poppier country I just that's how I was raised yeah now going back to to all these numerous hats. Is there, and not saying that there's anything wrong with the hats, but is there one that you particularly enjoy wearing more than the other? I guess I will always say the production hat because I just come from that. I mean, that's how I would, that's everything. That's, that is Mickey. I grew up, you know, uh, I guess my mom said at age two or three years old, I was standing up in the passenger seat. She said, the radio was on and I was knocking my knees to the back of the seat singing as much as I could like a rhinestone cowboy. And that was, and she says it to this day. She's like, I'll always remember you, you know, in our Dodge Dart or whatever the car was, hitting the back of your legs on that seat singing like a rhinestone cowboy. And from that point, I started taking guitar lessons when I was eight, started playing with her when I was 10, had my first band when I was 15. It's always been music to me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the music always wins. And on the production side, you know, I, I was an artist back then per se. I mean, I never had a deal, but I, I, I was doing it for a living and I learned it's a hard job. It's extremely Being hard, an artist yeah. is a tough job. Um, you know, it's, a, it's, I hate to say it this way, but it's a product that you're trying to sell to the fans. And I figured, you know what? I, I don't want to <laughs> bank my entire career on my artistry. I want to bank my entire career on other people's artistry. Mm-hmm. And and in my soul, I just bleed music. So, yeah, the production hat is always the biggest hat. So with, with that being said, what is that first moment that, that drew you to music? I mean, is it the rhinestone cowboy story? Is it? I mean, what what is that moment? Man, I mean, of course, I didn't remember doing that, uh, but I've heard it my whole life. So um, at a young age, that that definitely uh, set with me. Uh, the well, what's the, what's the thing. first thing you remember? Probably Stevie Ray Vaughan. 
that world. I mean, I I saw Stevie Ray Vaughan in concert, and as a guitar player when I was that teenager, you know, that was probably that was one of the first uh, big moments where I was like, "That's awesome." Now, and of course, that's a he's from Austin, and it's a different Texas kind of a thing. But musically, that was my own. I grew up with my mom and and sisters singing Andrew Sisters and sitting around a piano playing, learning three part harmonies. You know, when they were really young. So it's hard for me to pick one moment because my family was so musical that yeah. I just grew up in it. I mean, I could say at ten years old I opened up for the Platters, and that was a huge moment. I mean, you know, so it's kind of hard to say what that one that uh transformation for me was because i just got it from an early age so naturally so got to bring this up you're a texas boy mm-hmm. uh, how is your life not football <laughs> well i was in pop warner i played sports all through high school i was in football until i graduated um, so what position did you play in football well I, so of course i was a little bigger as a boy <laughs> I, I was a, i started out as a center and then they moved me over to a guard then i was a tight end and then i was a little bit of a linebacker too for a little bit so i kind of made my way around so you you didn't produce the water <laughs> <laughs> i was never the water boy even though at times i probably should have been the water producer yeah that's right no but so i was all about that um um, you know, in the in the midst of of playing as well, um, but you know, once you when you say you know why did it all about football, the older I got, of course, it was just all about music. Yeah, yeah. So uh, your company, Core Entertainment, yes, has a publishing arm. Yes. And what does Core mean? Creating and operating real entertainment. <laughs> How does that sound? You like? No. That? I just wanted to hear him say it. Yeah. <laughs> but as a publisher. You've uh, not long ago had a, a number one. I did first number one as a publisher. Uh, Jordan Walker uh, of Walker McGuire co-wrote When It Rains It Pours with big uh, song. Luke Combs and Ray Fulcher. Very big yeah. song. So how did that song. feel sort of... It felt being... like mailbox money, baby. That's <laughs> <laughs> what sort of just being the boss. I'm selling a catalog tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got mean, kids. <laughs> that's it. Because you, I mean, not that a publisher doesn't, I mean, you're working. You're yeah. working, but to kind of oversee, you know, someone you're overseeing and, and mentoring sort of have that success. You know, how did that feel? Well, it was awesome. I'm, of course, for Jordan. I mean, he's such a great writer and and so deserving. I have to be honest with you. I said it to him at the number one party. I was like, man, I'd love to take credit for you getting this one, number one. But he had written it like right when I met him, you know, so I didn't. And he wrote it with Luke. So I, don't, I'm, I definitely would love to like plant a stake in the ground and be like, I got you this cut. But, uh, you know, as a publisher, of course, it feels absolutely awesome um, because a lot of that is just kind of knowing the talent. Right. And being able to find the, 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 the writer that hasn't had that success yet that, you know, needs that nurturing and, and and you know able to sign him and not only help him as an artist but help him as a writer get the connections in town build the relationships and get to this point i mean it's uh it's another goal that, that yeah. was met you know another check off the list which uh, is incredible another another big uh deal in 2016 you won producer of the year award from the CCMAs. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Canadian producer of the year. And it's funny because they were saying, you need to come to the awards because you're nominated for the Brett Kissel record. And yeah. I was like, 
I'm not going to win. I mean, are you kidding me? Mickey from Texas and Nashville going to Canada, winning a producer of the year. But you won it. And I won it. They called me and said, you won. I had uh, uh, Phil Barton texting me, everybody, all the Canadians going, dude, where are you? Hey. <laughs> I'm like, oh. Hey, guys, it's Shalacy. Check us out on the web at KnoxCountry360.com or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at KnoxCountry360. But back to your publishing thing, yeah. the the thing you did best there was probably the term Schedule A. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> so that song was on the Schedule A. That song was on the Schedule A. Yeah, that song was on the Schedule A. Which Schedule A's cool. can be worth some good money that's in, right. in publishing. That's right. You know? That's right. And even more money after they start having success with the songs they've been writing. People start looking for those songs off the Schedule A to cut. Well, And, and another thing it's, it's sort of i'm just reading through um all your many accomplishments oh thank you um incredible vocals let me get the book yeah <laughs> don't hurt your shoulder don't throw your shoulder out now uh, but you sang background vocals on it goes like this Thomas i Rett. did thanks to michael knox that was one of the best produced tracks i've ever heard it was that's a hit any, actually you're any, so right anyway um back to me no you're so right um it's <laughs> yeah i mean it, you can hear you i mean you <laughs> there's just one of me I mean, <laughs> one, he stacked him like xanadu yeah and then michael said nope i just want one of you yeah i was like well hey whatever you think and I mean, it worked you sing background on on a lot of tracks i do i i sing uh not really People sometimes go, do you have to sing on your projects? I said, no, but when I'm wanting a certain mm-hmm. uh, background part and texture and all that, it just works. So I'm singing all the backgrounds on all the Dustin songs that I yeah. have. That I, <laughs> that's exactly why I didn't go. I was like, I'm not going to win. And sure enough, I said... Well, I guess they do, but I guess the well, project, yeah. how they, however they do that Canadian, you know, stuff, it figured out that it's it's legit. It counted. Yeah, you know. So, but uh, as a producer, because I noticed with Knox too, um, it is you know just because you have a go to person doesn't mean that person's always going to work. That's so right. You're saying it is. You know, you, you do have to make that call as far as for texture, who's going to work, who's not going to work. One hundred percent. You know, is is that. Is that a hard decision to make sometimes? Because it's real easy. Because honestly, I would sh- I actually shy a- away from doing it. Like I'd prefer not to just always do it. I'd rather try other people. And that if that doesn't work, then I'll sing. Um, and then sometimes I just you know once you've done it a couple times, you kind of just know if if I'm going to work with a certain artist. And as a producer, of course, I I I do wear that hat and ear really well to say. I suck on this. I'm not going to sing on this. But coincidentally, like with Dustin, it just sounds yeah. It sounds good. He's had uh, a couple of singles out since those four, uh, and I didn't produce them, and I didn't <laughs> sing on them. And I, somebody from the label called me up and was like, did you work on this? I said, no. And they're like, I can tell. It just <laughs> doesn't sound like that thing. you know. Yeah. And I'm not saying they were saying it was bad or good. Yeah. I'm just saying they, it's, there's, a, there's a little thing that happens sometimes. There's, I mean, yeah. It's like with Jason. Well, if I remember correctly, with, with Thomas Rhett, we – there was a sound that you had behind his voice. I think we tried somebody else, on, on, and and it wasn't. It was too harsh. Yeah, it wasn't working. And I was like, "Wow, man, with his voice, we need we need more of a more of a chameleon sound That's right. back there." 
That's right. And I think that's what I have in that sense is more of a transparency where I'm not coloring, bringing in another color where it sounds like it's a duet. And if you need something really soft and feminine. I knew you were going to go here. <laughs> from, a, from a male vocal, <laughs> your Wait. stuff is exceptional. I can be soft and feathery. <laughs> My ooze are delicious. Well, with Trace, we wore it out. Yeah, that's true. That's with, true. with Trace, we, we uh, at least of the ones I cut on Trace, yeah. you were stacking and stacking. Yeah, this ain't no love song. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that was awesome. Well, that's awesome, dude. Well, I, I love you spending time with us, man. I, even though we do it anyway, you know, um, I like that we get to spend time like this to remind each other how far back uh, you know our 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 past goes, as well as. You know, you in the business. How did the two of you meet? You reached out to me. Yeah, I, I, I think I, I actually think I, I, I can't a hundred percent remember to be honest with you. Uh, your name came up as an engineer that I was looking for an editing engineer. Was it through Kenny? And um, no, 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 because no. he called me. Michael called me up and asked me. He said I got to cut some signs on Chuck Wicks. I think that was one of the first yeah. projects we actually when you worked. had your no, house no, it was time. Kenny Beard. Yeah, Kenny Beard. Well, Kenny, but we didn't work on that stuff together yet. No, but but Kenny mentioned your name. Yeah, and okay. I said, "Hey, man, let me go do this Chuck stuff with him because I'm going to see because yeah. we're going to so I can get a rapport. That's right. Before we start Trace's stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then we were at your old house in the basement. That's right. Tom. I remember being at your old house one day and it started raining. Yeah. And all the water came down from the hill. <laughs> Shut up. You remember? <laughs> no. you remember? And, and, and it flooded your studio. Oh, that was in 2010. Yeah, it flooded yeah, your no, studio. No, it was. that's actually why no. I don't have that house anymore. But we worked on that. Don't say that too loud, man. Whoever bought we it. Worked on, <laughs> we I don't care now. We worked on Chuck's last hit. That's right. Together. That's and right. that's where we, and I love that project. That was some cut. great no, stuff. That was fun. That was and a then lot we fun. started doing Montgomery Gentry. Then we yep. did some Trace, right. Aldine, um, yeah. and, and some other things kind of came about that, you know, yeah. and um, got to do the Don't You Want to Stay Together? That was, was cool awesome. out here. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me beyond all of that. I, I, it changed my life. It really did. Well, it changed it's, my I mean, it's, it's actually the biggest. Your your projects that I've engineered with you are the biggest projects I've ever been a part of. Well, I get that a lot. I know. Well, I'm just saying. Oh, Do you hear this? Do you hear this? I'm trying to give a compliment. And all this. No, I'm just kidding. No. You, you That's deserve you to say that. Just no. don't give well, them yeah. We were, uh, I was looking for another extension of the team, too, at that time. And, yeah. and, and it's been, it's gratifying my way, too, because it's, you know, you know, I, you know, I put you up there as one of the best engineers in town oh thanks Michael. you know and yeah. um you know so that that was a great transition for me because we were coming from a totally analog world of right. recording and we were evolving into keeping up with the times yeah i remember jason saying that at the at, he was like you mean i don't have to stay here and sing one song all day i can just sing and leave yep yeah i remember that yeah and we're saying yeah man we can do all the work for you now <laughs> yeah, now we'll do all the heavy lifting <laughs> yeah no it's been awesome Thank but that's you so awesome much. man well dude i love you coming by um i mean you go back a long ways you're like family to me and um uh love i get to hang with you as much as i do so thank you for coming by and sharing a lot of this mess with us knox country Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Knox Country Podcast. Special thanks go out to co-host Mr. Lacey Griffin and producer Donnie Walker. See you next time. You've entered Knox Country Outtakes. Now, I'm decked out, too. I've got a gold chain, a gold rope oh, chain. Oh, mercy. I've got a Corona hat. I've got one of them white Corona hats. I had a white Corona tank top and my flip-flops, so I was like... 
I'm going down here with the college kids. <laughs> I've got the ladies chasing down this Jeep. All of a sudden, the cops come. They're wondering what's going on. We shut down the beach in Port Aransas when I was 12 or 13 years old. But needless to say, they got my chain back, my hat back, and I got an apology. It's, what it is is my big ass tongue. You're listening to not, that little Knox thing. This is me. I kind of that's where I planted my seed in the. What that sounds like really bad. Planted my. Don't, you got to edit that. You got their kids. Yeah, you got to edit that out. Knox Country Podcast Edition.